Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, we talk to Professor Doyne Farmer, who is the Bailey Gifford Professor in Mathematics at the University of Oxford, the Director of the Complexity Economics Program at INET, and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. We just cover an insanely broad range of topics in this episode, including how Doyne and his friends use physics and hidden computers to beat the roulette wheel in Las Vegas casinos, how advancing economic models can help us better predict business cycles and knock-on effects from extreme shocks like COVID-19, and lastly, techniques for predicting technological progress and long-run growth, with specific applications to energy technologies and climate change. I should flag that Doyne said he will email us with his three book recommendations, so we will add that to the website as soon as possible. I thought it was just really insightful how Doyne's work manages to touch on so many topics within the effective altruism space, such as tail risks, differential tech development, and forecasting. But I also definitely expect some listeners might just disagree with some of the conclusions that Doyne comes up with, especially on topics like nuclear power and AI risk. I think we were sadly too short on time to really get into a longer discussion of some of the cruxes and disagreements here, though if there is listener demand, we'd definitely be up for organizing a round two. But in any case, I hope that laying out Doyne's thinking here will leave you with new insights to synthesize and questions to continue pondering on. Lastly, I'm also really excited to announce that Finn and I have launched a listener survey to get more feedback on how we can improve the podcast. It should take around 10 minutes of your time to fill out, and there's a choice of a free book in it for you at the end. We're really interested in continuing to experiment with new formats and make sure that we can provide you with content that's different or complementary from other podcasts you might be listening to. So if you have the time, we'd really love for you to help us make this show as good as it can be. But without further ado, here's the episode. My name's Dawn Farmer. My formal titles are that I'm the Director of Complexity Economics at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. And I'm also the Bailey Gifford Professor of Mathematics, and I'm in the external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute and the Complex Systems Hub in Vienna. Awesome. That's great. Um, so I would be really keen to maybe take the conversation right to the very beginning. Sure. Because uh, I think you've got just a really cool origin story, uh, if I can like maybe <laughs> maybe call it that. Um, can you tell us the story of like eudaimonic enterprises and in particular the story of how you came to kind of beat the, the roulette wheel? Sure. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I got my start on doing prediction things when uh, my friend Norman Packard had the idea that uh, since roulette is just a physical system, we should be able to use physics to beat roulette. And so we bought a roulette wheel. We um, did a lot of measurements on roulette balls. And we determined that indeed it was possible to predict the trajectory of a roulette ball and predict roughly where it would land on the wheel so that we could then uh, place bets. The key is that the croupier, after the croupier releases the ball, the order of 15 seconds elapse before bets are closed and the ball falls off. But bets are only closed a few seconds before the ball actually mm -hmm. exits the track. And so um, we were then able to tap with our toes with little switches we built into our shoes and uh, determine the velocity of the ball by tapping every time the ball completed a revolution. And similarly for the rotor. Yeah, yeah. And then we solved the equations of motion for a rolling ball on a circular track. And, uh, and then we would, a second person, we would send a radio signal to a second person. One person would stand near the roulette wheel and make the measurements. A second person would receive the, the betting signals 
and place bets. Yeah. yeah. And, what uh, were you placing bets on? Colors or? No, we had to place bets on numbers because yeah. the colors go, you know. Right, right, right. Of course. Yeah. So the numbers, on the other hand, are on a specific part of the wheel. And so we place a bet on three numbers that were in roughly the part of the wheel we thought the ball would was likely to come to. And our predictions were not very precise, but they were good enough that we could say the ball was very unlikely to land on about eight numbers opposite mm-hmm. to where it was coming out. And uh, that gave us about a 20% edge over the house. Right, right. And how, how come you guys were like the first people to do this? Is this like kind of physics just well, like really hard or do physicists not well, normally so like we actually, we, we actually were not the first people to do it. Uh, there was another group by, by Claude Shannon, who's yeah. a pioneer of information theory, and Ed Thorpe, who's probably the most famous gambler ever. And uh, uh, so they had the, actually it was Thorpe's idea, but they built their computer in Shannon's basement. Now their computer was an analog computer and they never successfully took it into a casino. They, they took it into a casino, but they had hardware problems, something we became very familiar with because we had a lot of hardware problems. But our effort was different in that we, we actually built the first wearable digital computer. It was not only wearable, it was concealable. Mm-hmm. Where was and, it concealed? Uh, we, well, the early version was concealed under an armpit. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had a computer under one armpit. We had a battery pack with 12 AA batteries under the other armpit. We had a little plate with solenoids that would buzz you with different frequencies to tell you which number was going on or uh, help you keep track of what was happening. We had wires coming from our shoes up to the computer. So you had to put on a whole wiring harness. We had an antenna wrapped around our shoulder. And uh, so it was kind of a complicated rig. And we made um, 11 different trips to Nevada. Uh, we made a 20% edge relative to the house, but I have to say we didn't get rich. <laughs> you know, our dream was that we were going to make a bunch of money and start a science commune and be you know, independent of the system. We didn't want to work in the military industrial complex and uh, wanted to be independent. What is a science commune? What does that involve? A science commune, well, it was, you know, we were, this is, you know, this was happening from 1970, let's see, the six to 1981. So we were, you know, we grew up in the days of hippies and we lived in a little commune ourselves already. And uh, uh, so it would be a science commune because we were a bunch of scientists. We'd buy, you know, a nice lab and computers and just do a science research on whatever we felt like thinking about. Uh, that was kind our, of paradise. our dream. <laughs> yeah, we thought it would be pretty great. Now, we didn't make all the money, and we ended up going off and, you know, getting jobs and academia. And we did, Norman Packard and I later on um, did, um, we started a, another company called Prediction Company that uh, beat the stock market. So th- that's where we made our money in the end. And, and that you know, honed our prediction skills even more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, regarding careers, I'm probably an example of somebody, I, I view those things I did as somewhat self-indulgent with hindsight, because they were just fun. And, and there, there were interesting challenges. It was, it was an adventure to uh, beat the casino, a little scary at times, actually. And um, it was an adventure to beat the market but now I want to 
do something useful for the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what do you think that these uh, kind of adventures and things have, have like taught you, or like what did it um, like go on to, to to lead you to do? Well, they taught me so many things. Um, uh, at a technical level, it taught me a lot about just science mm. uh, and engineering. The Roulette Project was a front-to-back uh, science research project. We had to do the experiments, work out the theory, build the equipment, uh, test everything to make sure it all worked. Mm. And how many people did you say were, were involved in that? Well, there were a total of about 30 <laughs> at different <laughs> times, most playing fairly small roles because, um, well, we had, there were probably about four or five of us involved in actually building the computers and doing the science stuff. Mm. Uh, but there was another guy who helped build the the little uh, signal devices. Uh, you know, the, the most of the people actually placed the bets were women. So yeah. uh, they had their signaling device built into their bra. Mm. And... Um, uh, and so, you know, somebody had to do all the sewing to build that. Uh, we had all the trips to the casino, so people trained to be betters or data takers. And so it was a, you know, saga over years. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I can expect there might be some grad students or even undergrads listening to this. Do you think in general these people are underrating, taking big random risks? Are they underrating it? Meaning in what sense of underrating? Meaning... If they're considering doing it, do you think they should tilt towards doing it more than they currently are? Well, I think it just depends on what you like. You know, uh, certainly with hindsight, I'm very glad I did it, even if it didn't really succeed, strictly speaking. Uh, I mean, we, we, we succeeded in beating the house. We didn't succeed in stockpiling large sums of cash. And that was due to a combination of persistent hardware errors and fear of casino security. Every time we raised the stakes, things got very tense. Mm. And, you know, there were stories of blackjack counters getting beat up and stuff like that. And so we were we were kind of yeah. cautious. And I was wor I think we probably were somewhat conspicuously looked like graduate students, <laughs> uh, though we did try to dress the part. Um, but but, you know, I learned so much. It was a lot of fun. It was just a great adventure. I'm very glad I did it. Mm. I mean, it did mean I, I dropped out of graduate school for about a year and a half to make it happen. And, uh, and you know, um, wasn't exactly directly on any career path. Mm. Mm. So after the roulette saga comes this um, dynamical systems collective. That's right. It's called the Chaos Cabal. Um, what was this thing called chaos that you decided to study? Well, um, chaos is a mathematical phenomenon uh, where nonlinear equations have the property that uh, nearby trajectories separate exponentially in time. So two points that are initially very close together later on become quite far apart. And this happens through a process that in an abstract space is a lot like mixing. It's like mixing bread dough. Mm -hmm. You know, you put a little spot of dye into bread dough and then you start, mm -hmm. you know, kneading it and eventually the whole bread dough turns pink. 
because the red spot of dye that you put in gets spread over the whole thing. So chaos is like that, except it's happening in a more abstract space. If you think, say, about the equations that describe fluid flows when, like, you know, flowing water uh, or the atmosphere or the weather, uh, that... uh, those have the proper, those are chaotic, which means that, you know, over the passage of time, it's, it's, it's you can't make a long range prediction of the weather that's accurate. You, I can't say a year from now mm-hmm. whether it's going to rain or not on a specific day. And no one will ever be able to do that. Mm-hmm. You uh, use this word nonlinear. You say where that comes from, yeah. what it's doing. In a so subject. nonlinear means, as the word suggests, not linear. <laughs> and linear means that. The, the whole is equal to the sum of its parts. Nonlinear means the whole is not equal to the sum of its parts. And it means that there, things are not additive. There are also multiplicative interactions that can amplify, that can contract, that uh, can damp. And that means you can have feedback. So, um, and feedback's a very important thing in all kinds of things we do. Um, you know, if I, if I take this microphone and, um, uh, put it next to a speaker, then I get feedback between the two and I hear the scream, uh, but feedback occurs in all kinds of, of systems, you know, uh, a, a radio wouldn't work without feedback. Uh, polarization in society is a feedback mechanism. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm interested in maybe in, in picking up on that last bit there and that like chaos seems to just like come up in like lots of like kind of real world uh, yeah. like phenomenons and stuff. Are there like any that you want to like particularly highlight as um, like areas where um, you currently see like a lot of research, but also when we're thinking about, um, you know, improving the world or like trying to do good and stuff where like chaos um, and like understanding these phenomenons is, is really important? Yeah, um, I already mentioned weather. That's a place where it's been very important to understand that. Uh, it's, it's been very important, actually, in understanding um, heart uh, failure and uh, different forms of metabolic dynamics, because you have a lot of feedback systems, regulatory systems in your body, uh, everything from uh, I- insulin to, well, the heart's a good example. Why is, why is your heart beating? It's your heart's an example of what in dynamical systems theory would be called a limit cycle. That is, it's something that spontaneously makes a roughly periodic motion. And it's doing that because of a uh, neurophysiological feedback loop that keeps the heart beating. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, but in fact, uh, your heart is not strictly periodic. It's varying all the time and variations normal and healthy, but there are other modes of variation that are not and that involve things like heart arrhythmias that um, can be um, are examples of where dynamical systems theory and chaos have been very useful to understand Mm. these phenomena. So that's a very tangible one. One that I'm engaged in working on now is in economics where um, I hypothesize that many phenomena like business cycles involve chaos. Mm. Yeah, can, can you speak a bit, a bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, the, the economy is changing all the time. Mm. And there are some forms of change that are secular, meaning 
that, uh, you know, GDP tends to go up through time uh, because we make technological progress. The, we, we become better at making things. Uh, but there's other irregular movements of the economy, the Great Depression, the Great Financial Crisis, uh, and more mundane variations that are called business cycles, mm -hmm. where the economy for a period of, say, five years or 10 years may do really well, and then it will decline for a while. We have a recession, yeah, yeah. and so we have booms and busts. And so these are a ubiquitous phenomenon in economics. And I think the only plausible explanations in most cases, in many cases, not all, are that it comes from internal dynamics. Mm -hmm. Actually, let me back up and say, standard economic theory says that it all comes from external stimulus, that something happens out there in the rest of the world that causes the business cycle to take place. Yeah. So it's a driver on the economy, not something that's generated internally by the economy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's a good explanation, like COVID. You know, COVID affected the economy significantly. Yeah. Uh, it was clearly an external driver. And, um, uh, but other phenomena like the great financial crisis, I would argue was clearly an internal phenomenon. It came from a combination of loose credit and the use of mortgage-backed securities and uh, uh, naivete about uh, diversifying risks. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was something that the economy generated by itself. Yeah, right. And a, a proper theory of economics would explain that. Yeah. And standard theories don't look at the crisis that way. And I don't yeah. think are very So j just plausible. to check that I understand this like distinction, right? So um, inside versus like kind of outside factors. Is it the case that inside factors are factors that we hope that models would have theories for kind of explaining like themselves? So when it comes to economic models, we hope that they would have a way to explain um, financial aspects, <laughs> leverage cycles and the like, versus we don't, you know, when it comes to outside factors, we don't have an expectation that an economic model will be able to predict when pandemics come. Like we right. see this as being kind yeah. of outside of it. Yeah, you, you, you're not going to be able to, an economic model will certainly not predict when the next pandemic will start, yeah. but an economic model could predict how the economy will respond to a pandemic. Mm. And in fact, one of the predictions I'm most proud of uh, is that we predicted quite successfully the impact of the pandemic on the economy of Great Britain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, we did it through a combination. Well, when the, when the pandemic broke out, we realized that uh, it was something we were set up to do, and we had, uh, I, I rounded up my favorite students and ex-students, yeah. and we did a kind of crash program to build a model for the pandemic. Uh, we figured out which occupations, which were not, were likely to not be going to work. Yeah. And, and, and wouldn't be able to work productively because they couldn't work remotely. Yeah. So in other words, people who were in working in non-essential industries and couldn't work from home, that those people would be removed from the workforce. Mm. And that would then cause a significant shock, a supply shock to the economy. Yeah. In, in addition, there would be a demand shock due to 
people not going to restaurants, not flying on airplanes, not taking buses, and so on. Mm -hmm. So we, um, because we had access to some rich data sets compiled by the, the U.S. Census Bureau, we were able, and we knew things like how close together did people in different occupations work together? Mm -hmm. So we could assume that they had to work close together. It wouldn't be safe. They'd be in danger of infecting each other, so they wouldn't be able to go to work. Mm. And I'm guessing the implication here is, is that you were able to make much better predictions this way by explicitly looking at it, I guess, through the pandemic lens than mainstream economic models would. That would just simply shift supply and demand curves. Well, perhaps. I mean, mainstream economics models did some version of this, because, but they would typically couple a, um, a standard uh, epidemiological model, mm. which is, and they, they typically took very simplified epidemiological models that don't produce very realistic predictions and couple them to an economic model and made assumptions about people's choices under utility maximization. Whereas we put in a lot of detail to our model. We had 450 occupations. We knew how each of those occupations was linked to the industry that it sat in. So we had a model with 56 industries. And so we could then predict how much each industry would be shut down as a result of people not being able to come to work. Mm -hmm. and, and then we built a dynamic non-equilibrium model where we could watch the shocks propagating through the economy, the supply shocks propagating um, uh, downstream in the economy and the demand shocks propagating upstream and colliding with each other and uh, amplifying the initial shocks of people not going to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I came across this analogy um, of the alternatives to something like, you know, agent-based modeling, where I think the phrase is a kind of hobby horse economy. Yeah. We have these exogenous shocks which tip off the economy off balance. And because there is some, you can you know, find some single fixed point, which will eventually equilibrate to, and it just kind of rocks back to an equilibrium until the next shock comes along and then it starts yeah, rocking again. That's right. But it sounds like the claim is, no, this is in fact just an inaccurate picture of how economies work. Yeah, I don't think, that we, I mean, sometimes the economy works a bit that way. And actually our, our model of COVID had some elements of that. That is, if we shocked it, it would just return I mean, and waited a long time, it would return to its steady state. So we, we were using, in this case, it was a bit like the, the rocking horse model. Um, uh, the difference being we really did it in a lot of detail. It was much, much more complicated beast than a rocking horse. And, uh, and, and we were able to then make extremely accurate predictions. We actually had an inventory for each industry of goods yeah, so yeah. we could look how the inventories of goods were being depleted, and and if an industry ran out of goods, then its production would shut down, and so um, so we just did things in a lot more detail, and we predicted a twenty one and a half percent drop in GDP in the second quarter of twenty twenty, and what was observed was a twenty two point one percent drop in GDP. So we pretty much nailed the number, and and you know we had. Of course, you can get lucky. We did get lucky in a few respects because we've done a elaborate post-mortem of the model now. But mostly we did things right. And we also had pretty good industry by industry predictions. Mm. Um, it sounds to me like when you, and I'm speaking to someone who's just naive to how even just 
standard models work, macro models. But um, when you do this thing where you're taking complexity and chaos seriously, um, one thing that you might get is that you begin to appreciate something you might call like systemic risk, which is to say, I guess, standardly, you'll have some distribution over outcomes and the tails are going to be fairly thin. So, you know, in 2007, the likelihood of something as catastrophic as uh, the 08 crisis is just like, you know, almost totally negligible. Um, but the tails get a bit thicker when you realize that there are these, these kind of complex, you know, interactions. Someone described an analogy to me recently, which was, if you imagine some kind of plane with dominoes on it, and all the dominoes are standing independently from one another, and you're kind of shaking it. Well, the chance of one domino falling over is independent from the other. So the chance of them all falling over at the same time or a large number is, is just, you know, you multiply the chance of a single one. But maybe they're kind of, they're close together, so that's such that one domino knocks the other one over. And maybe that's just a more accurate picture of how economies work, and therefore maybe we should be taking these kind of tail risks a bit more seriously on, the, on these kind of pictures. Does that make some sense? No, that makes total sense. And I've uh, been involved in several other models that really dug into that quite a bit. Um, in our COVID model, the amplifying effect was the interaction of, of the shocks with each other and the fact that if one industry shuts down and it's supplying goods for another industry, then that industry can get shut down. So that's exactly your domino analogy, mm. right? You've got 56 industries are like 56 dominoes, except they're arranged in a way so there's a notion of upstream and downstream. You know, for my laptop, the chip maker is upstream because you can't make the laptop without the chip. The laptop maker has to buy the chip from the mm. chip maker, and the chip maker has to buy the raw materials for the chip from, you know, a, a molybdenum mine or whatever goes into chips, and um, uh, and so on. Uh, so there's some amplification there and some form of systemic risk. It's even more pronounced in models we built of the financial system, where... Um, for example, we have a model uh, I built with um, uh, Stefan Turner and John Genacopoulos, Sebastian Poledna, where we could see how we, we could have an economy where we would we would assume that that the investors weren't allowed to use leverage, and as you were mentioning a moment ago, that that financial system had thin tails, the market never made large crashes, you know, at most prices moved by 5% at a time. Um, but if we let the investors start borrowing money and using leverage to buy stocks on borrowed money, then as we turn the knob up that turned the leverage up, we saw the economy get uh, more and more varying in its behavior. We saw crashes start to happen. We saw heavy tails in the outcomes so that you could get crashes as big as 40% uh, in a single day. And so that, that was a good example of systemic risk because it's the interactions of investors with each other and the fact that once you use leverage, you can be forced to uh, sell into a falling market in order to uh, maintain your leverage limit. So it's, and ironically, it's precisely the measures that are taken to mitigate risk that cause the crash to happen. Uh, because the bank says, well, I'll lend the money to you, but your leverage can never be more than 15 to one. In other words, the ratio of 
the amount of money you have to the value of the stocks you own, or actually let's do it the other way, the ratio of the value of the stocks you own to the money you have can never be more than 15. Then the problem is that if the market crashes or starts to, starts to go down, maybe it's not crashing yet, it's just yeah. going down, that means your leverage goes up, which means you have to sell stocks in order to bring your leverage down to where it was. So it means when the price is falling, you're selling. And so if there's a lot of leveraged investors, they all do this together. Mm -hmm. That's the systemic part. They amplify the downward movement. That makes prices go down even more because everybody's selling. And then people have to sell even more. And so you get this avalanche. You get a feedback effect. And is the point that you notice this when you try to simulate this and yeah. set it up? But yeah. you don't, or at least it's harder to notice when you're just kind of, you know, solving for some equilibrium. Well, people knew this. I don't know. People, my, actually, my colleague, John Jenikopoulos, had built an equilibrium model where he could show in a three-step process that, that a crash might occur when there were leverage investors. Mm. So he could show the mechanism in a very stylized three-step model, whereas we had a model where market just, you know, went along. And what we showed is it's actually more than that. It's not that once in a while you get a crash. It's that there's little crashes and medium crashes and big crashes. And big crashes are rarer than the medium crashes. And medium crashes are rarer than the little crashes that are happening quite frequently due to these mechanisms. So, so we could just give a much fuller description of what was happening. And and in another example, we showed that um, if we used what's called value at risk, which is a standard way to uh, manage risk in financial markets that came into popularity in the 90s and is recommend, was recommended by the Bank of International Settlements mm -hmm. as part of what's called Basel II. Mm -hmm. So people were supposed to follow this. And the basic idea is that if markets become more volatile, that means that they're likely to be more volatile in the future, which means that you should reduce your leverage. And, and if I'm like an institutional investor, I'm going to be following this kind of Basel II yeah, setup? Yeah, almost everybody. We, when, I, when we had prediction company, we followed Basel II. Yeah. It was a standard thing to do. And, um, but we built a model that showed that if everybody follows Basel II, and everybody's using leverage above some level, mm. then you get an oscillation where the whole market will climb for 10 years, roughly, because, um, uh, you know, prices go up, but volatility goes down. And this is exactly what mm. happened in the run-up to the great financial crisis. For about 10 years, the market went up, prices went down because everybody's... Uh, Risk management practice is, is, is damping these little fluctuations. And then, but then through time, as volatility goes lower and lower, leverage gets higher and higher. And leverage goes up nonlinearly under Basel II. And so eventually leverage got high enough that it hit kind of a critical point. And then any little disturbance can cause the market to crash because everybody starts, again, selling into a falling market, and you have a crash, and then the cycle would repeat itself.
mm. repeated itself chaotically. Each crash was not exactly the same as the previous crash. But you know, this could happen even without any noisy inputs. So it's chaos mm -hmm. happening. So we, we could see this happening in a very simple model that produces dynamics that looks a lot like what happened in the run-up and then during the great financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So our point was that, back to what you said, it's systemic risk. Mm -hmm. And systemic risk due to boundedly rational, that is not fully rational investors, not investors who don't understand everything, because none of us understand everything, um, making choices that seem very plausible to reduce their risk, that turn out that would be good if only one investor was doing that would be very sensible. Mm -hmm. But when everybody starts doing it, the whole market starts acting in sync and systemic risk takes over. Mm. Yeah, so maybe zooming out a bit, I guess yeah. like one way in which I hear a lot of these like complexity economics arguments is that um, in large part, we just have, you know, these amazing advances in kind of computing and data that just let us do a whole bunch more with like models and why not like do this? Um, so I guess like with the COVID example you gave, a lot of this seems to be like linked to just having like data that lets you model heterogeneous agents and networks. Uh, and here, what you were saying about with 2008, a lot of this seems to be about like modeling more complex behavior and bounded rationality and, and the like there. And that a lot of these things is just about kind of exploring um, and kind of like utilizing um, a lot more of this complexity, which we now now can actually model. Is that is that about right? Do you feel that's yeah. like kind of a fair? Yeah, no, what you there? said is, is pretty much true. I think uh, there's also a different uh, conceptual framework about how the economy works. Standard economics, mainstream economics, uh, all, equ all drives equations and then solves equations. And the equations are derived from assumptions about uh, selfish utility maximization. Mm. So each agent is, uh, this is called methodological individualism. Each agent uh, makes choices that are computed from a theory that are designed to maximize utility. Mm. And so we say, well, we don't think that's the right way to think about this. Really what happens is people have behaviors and you can observe their behaviors. They use heuristics, simple rules of thumb to make decisions. They reason at some level. There's some learning going on, but the learning's relatively simple. And so people muddle their way along and make decisions to get by. And they may have goals, but they're not utility maximizers. Mm. I mean, they may even try to achieve their goals. They probably don't in general achieve them perfectly. And so we model the world with those kind of rules mm. and computer simulations. And this allows us to make models that are much more realistic in yeah. terms of uh, institutional structure and so on. So I guess like one question I have here is if you're able to kind of predict um, what kind of a recession or drop in GDP you might get from a pandemic, um, or if you're able to like kind of identify these like systemic risks um, from, you know, financial crises, why aren't these like models like more mainstream? I think I'm kind of correct in, in characterizing that complexity economics still is under the like heterodox kind of economics field yeah. and like on the fringe. If there is such like explanatory power here and especially one that is maybe very lucrative in the like financial sense of being able to harness these things. Um, why aren't these things more, more widespread? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the field is young. Uh, you know, the mainstream is not doing that. So who does it? 
uh, people at a few odd economics departments in Europe. I sit in a mathematics department. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a colleague who's at George Mason University, Rob Axtell, who sits in a computational social science department. Mm-hmm. So um, there are very few economists who, who have been using this approach. So it hasn't been properly tried. Yeah. Second reason is it's not not easy. You know, yeah. if you want to make a good model that has is really accurate, uh, you've got to you got to gather a lot of data. You have to really uh, um, write some non-trivial software. Uh, there's a lot of trial and error involved. Uh, so it's a substantial effort, and not something that it's likely that one person is just going to easily do on their own, yeah. working by themselves. Um, there are lots of qualitative models, like the one I mentioned um, that we made for uh, understanding Basel II, the effect of Basel right, II in the yeah. great financial crisis. You know, it's it sort of qualitatively does something that looks a lot like what happened, but it's not making sharp quantitative predictions. Yeah. Um, our COVID model is, I think, the first time where an agent-based model made a real-time prediction. That is, we made the prediction before this stuff happened, so nobody can accuse us of, you know, being biased by yeah. seeing the answer first. Yeah. Um, so we made a real-time prediction that was pretty accurate. That's a first. Uh, I, I guess I'm like especially curious here, maybe like outside of academia, if you see there like being any users. You mentioned prediction company and like in the stock market uh, and things before. Um, yeah, like do you see like um, I guess like any like low hanging fruit there, or do you have like any timelines yourself on like when you expect, let's say, a hedge fund or some other institutional investor being like, look, these models have got like a huge amount of power. If academia isn't going to do it, yeah, like we'll we'll kind of pioneer this first. So there are definitely some hedge funds and investment banks that are making agent based models now. Um, you know, I, I hear rumors and I, I, I know quite tangibly of a few things. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say. <laughs> um, so it's definitely starting to happen. Yeah. And, and it's already happened in lots of other fields. Mm. Like agent-based modeling is mainstream in epidemiology. Yeah. It's mainstream in traffic management. It's mainstream in battlefield strategy, yeah. uh, in inventory management. Uh, so there are a lot of areas where agent-based modeling is being used very successfully now. And, and I think that's about to start happening in economics. Mm. Uh, I'm planning, starting in the autumn, to start a company that will uh, build agent-based models mm. for economic applications. Um, starting the company really because there's a limit to how much you can do in a university. If you want to build We've you know, large, <laughs> large infrastructure, yeah. databases, a big software base, that's not the right thing for students and postdocs to be working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's m- more engineering and applied work. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really hoping this time, unlike when a prediction company, I found it very frustrating that, okay, we, we made money for ourselves. We made a lot of money for some Swiss bankers. And... Uh, uh, and we had to keep everything secret, so it didn't do much for the world. Mm. And, you know, maybe we were making markets more efficient, but I'm not totally convinced that was valuable. Mm. And um, whereas this time I really want to do it uh, in a more open way mm. and in a way that can benefit 
policymakers and provide better guidance so we can steer the economy more intelligently. Mm. And is the idea that you can be something like a kind of, you can consult a policymaker and run simulations, see the effects of policy ideas? Yeah, precisely, cool. precisely. I mean, we may, may also have more commercial clients they have more money, and so they, they may be better source for uh, putting the fuel in the engine. Mm. But certainly my, my main goal is to put these kind of models in the hands of policymakers. One kind of like odds doesn't really fit nicely into the structure uh, like question I have is, do you have any takes on like super forecasting? So I've, I've um, spent a lot of time making predictions. Mm. And... Uh, and I've made other kinds of predictions too, like using just data, what are called time series models. For example, how do we predict the sunspot cycle? You might think, well, we know a lot about the physics of the sun. Maybe we make measurements and run a sophisticated model of what's going on inside the sun. No. Mm -hmm. The way we make sunspots, we predict how strong the sunspot cycle is going to be next year. Mm -hmm. So we use a data set that was compiled by... Belgian monks starting in the 17th century uh, who would go out every day and use a telescope to look at the sun and count how many sunspots they saw yeah. and write it down in a book. And then they taught it so that to their, you know, uh, junior people and they did it through centuries. And so we have record going back a long way about how many sunspot cycles there are. And we just use a very simple model that uses the past history of sunspot cycles to predict the future. Mm. So that's an example of just, you know, using data yeah, to, yeah. To, to make predictions. So I have a lot of experience making forecasts from data. To be honest, I'm pretty suspicious about people's ability to make forecasts. Uh, and one of my postdocs, Rupert Way, worked on a paper with Laura Anadon and some others from Cambridge where they compared the success of what's called expert elicitation mm. to models just based on history. And the models based on history did better in general. And we've actually been using this quite a bit to um, forecast uh, technological progress for climate change. Because, mm. you know, if you want to understand the right policy for climate change, which, which technologies should we support to make uh, power or to, to create energy without um, creating carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases? And, uh, you know, you can do it with nuclear power, for example, or you could do it with solar cells. And 10 years ago or 15 years ago, people, many people were strongly supporting nuclear power because they thought, well, this is the way to go. Solar cells are too expensive. But if you look at history, you'd see the solar, solar prices were rocketing down mm -hmm. and nuclear energy prices were going up. Mm -hmm. And so a fairly simple forecast based on data would tell you that solar was the way to go. But a lot of the experts were saying, no, no, nuclear is the way to go. I guess before we start talking, yeah. we'll start talking about forecasting technological yeah. progress. Yeah. But what I, I want to stick up for the kind of super forecasting yeah. um, uh, story. And I think people would agree with what you're saying there, which is one way you can you can be an exceptional forecaster is just to ignore the pundits and just use the 
the crude time series data, yeah. that in fact turns out to be best, which often it does, as you point out. Um, so I'm not actually sure there's like a huge, there's a huge difference of opinion there. Well, yeah, the question is, you know, what are the super forecasters doing? And I'm not, I don't, I don't deny the possibility that they might be able to do very well, but we're lacking any substantive studies on, on how well people do actually. Is that the case? So I, I guess I can, uh, I can write down my predictions and then I can score yeah. them and I can learn about my accuracy and my calibration over time. Yeah. It's a long process, but it is quantitative. Yeah. No, I, mean, I haven't, I mean, there may be studies I'm unaware of. The, the, the best one I know is the one I mentioned by, uh, uh, that involved Laura Anadon and Rupert Way, mm -hmm. where they gathered what data they could find on expert elicitation and then compared it to uh, the kind of methods we, yeah. we use. And, um, and, you know, I've heard anecdotal evidence that about super forecasters doing a good job. Mm -hmm. But to do this kind of thing right, you need to have a data set that's not biased by uh, uh, data sampling where you just, you just pick the good stuff and you leave the bad stuff out. Yeah. And so it's very easy to come up with a biased study. Yeah. And I haven't seen any unbiased studies mm -hmm. yeah. to show that. It may well be that some people are really good at forecasting um, or, or not. But in some sense, I'm saying maybe the people who are exceptionally good are good precisely because they ignore their biases well, and kowtowing to the experts. Yeah. I guess it's a question of like when we say expert elicitation, like who are the experts? Is it people trained in forecasting or is it people trained in the domain in which like yeah. a forecast question is, yeah. is, is being asked? Yeah. Yeah. And, and people have in the past tended to look to people with domain knowledge. Mm, and, and, you know, they're often biased. If you're an expert in nuclear power, yeah. you're going to tend to be biased to think things are going to go well and yeah, yeah. nuclear power is going to do well. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's been a complicated story. Yeah. Well, let's maybe shift the conversation to, uh, as, as we kind of touched on there, this question of like technology. Uh, one way I kind of want to frame this is we've previously were talking about kind of business cycles, which are maybe these kind of like short term, uh, like mm -hmm. fluctuations in the economy. But really when economists, I think, are often asked about what is like the real drivers of like long term economic growth and in that sense, kind of prosperity too, technology really seems to play uh, a kind of central role. And in some ways, technological innovation looks like a really random kind of chaotic process. People come up with ideas, uh, you know, kind of out of the blue. Uh, and it's like really hard to, to get a sense as to like what that might lead to. But one of the like interesting uh, insights here is that maybe this thing uh, actually does have some kind of insights. So maybe a, a question to kind of kick things off here is, is how predictable do you think technological progress is? Well, it's, it, it, it depends is, is uh, maybe the first answer, but surprisingly predictable. While we can't predict the precise innovations that will uh, you know, make cause improvements, trajectories of improvement can be very predictable. And the most famous example is Moore's Law, which was formulated by Gordon Moore in 1965, when he said that um, uh, the density of integrated circuits had been increasing, had been doubling every, initially said 18 months, and then made a little correction and said, well, really, I think it's about every two years. And that prediction has been remarkably accurate mm -hmm. 70 years into the future from then. And uh, it's now finally stopping because it's hit a fundamental wall, but it had a 70-year run of doing really, really well. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that uh, increasing the density of integrated circuits meant not just uh, making chips smaller, but making them more power efficient and making them faster. Mm -hmm. And 
And that means that computers are roughly a billion times faster than they were uh, in 1965. Mm. And so it's quite a remarkable prediction. And one of the things we've been involved in showing is that this phenomenon doesn't just happen for computers. It happens for lots of other uh, technologies. Mm -hmm. um, not every technology, most technologies don't show it, but some technologies do. Integrated circuits have dropped in price, as Moore said, uh, increasing in performance, doubling their performance roughly once every two years, mm -hmm. which translates into about a 40% improvement per year. Uh, solar photovoltaics have improved at roughly 10% per year. Mm -hmm. And they have been doing that since their inauguration in 1958 for the Vanguard satellite. So it's the first commercial application of a photovoltaic cell. Um, so it's been a you know, remarkably steady improvement track. It has wiggles and bumps, mm -hmm. but it, roughly speaking, has stayed on that course. Wind power has also gone down at a fairly steady rate. Um, lithium batteries have showed a fairly steady improvement rate. These are all key technologies for climate change. But, um, but other technologies like fossil fuels, fossil fuel prices now are within a factor of two of what they were 140 years ago. They, fossil fuel prices like coal, oil, gas, they bump up and down. Uh, they vary through factors of five or even 10 but there's no systematic trend. Mm -hmm. And um, the efficiency of combustion engine cars and vehicles as well, I looked at recently, it's roughly constant. It's roughly constant. I mean, it went down at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it kind of plateaued. And maybe it could go down a little more. But it's not like solar cells have improved in power in, in uh, cost by a factor of 5,000 since their inception. So this, this has something to do with something called Wright's Law? Yeah, so Wright's Law is related to Moore's Law. It's actually much stated much earlier. Moore was not aware of it when he stated Moore's Law. Wright's Law dates back to 1936. And Wright, a very interesting guy, uh, Theodore Wright, was a, uh, from a, uh, a, his two brothers were very famous. Mm -hmm. One of his brothers is was Sewell Wright, who's one of the most famous evolutionary biologists. His other brother was Percival Wright, who's considered one of the founders of political science. And, and, but Theodore Wright uh, went, was, was a flyer in World War I, was a flying ace who then came back and went into the aviation business. And so he was a businessman. But in 1936, he wrote one paper, that scientific paper, based on the observation that every time a air aircraft manufacturer plant doubled its production, the cost of manufacturing the airplane tended to, come, tended to drop by about 20%. Mm -hmm. and, and so people latched onto this law and used it not just for airplanes, but other technologies, and not just at the level of factories, but for global production of technologies. Sure. And so to be clear, this is the idea that costs drop as um, a kind of power law function of total cumulative production right. to date. Um, and apparently, you know, this applies to solar PV, 
to semiconductor chips, to aeroplanes. Um, these are very different technologies. And also, if any particular technology, it's not as if the innovations which are getting them cheaper and cheaper are the same every year. So what, what's the kind of general story that you, or explanation that you can give for why this kind of pattern apparently seems to hold? Well, um, it, it, there's several factors, and it's hard to tease them apart. One of them is what's called learning by doing. The more you do something, the more you learn about it. And it turns out that there's something associated in psychology called the power law of practice, mm -hmm. that if you take a rote task like summing numbers uh, by hand, um, the more you sum numbers, the quicker you get at that task. Uh, you reach a point of diminishing returns in the sense that, you know, you'll improve a lot at the beginning and you improve more and more slowly, but you too continue to slowly improve. And roughly every time you double the number of sums you've made in your life, you get some fraction better. Mm -hmm. um, so we see this in lots of things um, due to learning. It can also happen due to economies of scale as, uh, uh, and learning can happen in different ways. It can happen at the level of society. Like we don't just get better at manufacturing solar energy modules. We get better at installing them cheaply. Um, so, so learning is certainly a big factor. We have a model where we assume that engineers uh, can improve things by just throwing darts at a dartboard. Yeah. And they're smart enough to see when they've made a good throw yeah. and realize that throw's better than some past throw. And I guess you can zoom in on the, the winning throw and then iterate again. Yeah, and this and yeah. And it gets harder and harder to improve through time because your throws, your best throw gets pretty good. So you've got to beat an increasingly better throw. Mm -hmm. Turns out that gives Wright's Law. Mm -hmm. And when you look at our model, we can also see that if you uh, couple different, if a technology has a lot of moving parts that depend on each other, uh, you know, like in a car, the engine depends on the carburetor, carburetor depends on, you know, an air filter and so on and so on. Yeah. Um, the more interacting parts you have, the uh, rate at which improvement happens drops because okay, the throws have to get, yeah. you, you have to have coordinated throws in I two see, different see, departments see. to make things work. Right. So that gives you Wright's Law. Does this then help explain why, you know, Wright's Law seems to like really apply for some technologies like solar, but not for others like fossil fuels? Or what, what's the, the kind of story well, there? Why more learning happens in one rather than the other? Yeah, it's sort of, it's at least part of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And there's some weak empirical evidence now. There have been a few papers testing our idea. Mm -hmm. um, so it partially explains what's going on. I, I don't want to claim that we have a full explanation. Like, exactly why is it that nuclear reactors have uh, not only not gotten cheaper, they've gotten more expensive. Mm -hmm. Now, that may be part because of increased concerns about safety through time. But they're certainly not going down in price. Uh, there's certainly not a factor of, I mean, if, if they were improving by a factor of 5,000, uh, and a factor of two or three for safety could be taken into account, but they just haven't done that. So we don't have really good explanations for why, uh, why some technologies improve so much faster than others. Modularity is part of the story, but, but not the whole story. And modularity meaning it's easy to make kind of small iterations. Yeah. Like things that you can print, for example, see, yeah. tend yeah. to improve rapidly. That was 
clearly part of the story behind integrated circuits. Yeah. It's essentially a printing process. And, and all you had to do was learn how to print smaller, and you got huge advantages yeah. across the board. So I guess it's harder to get better at building dams or something because it's yeah. so, so lumpy. You gathered some data on different technologies. You found that some fitted this kind of rights law story and others don't, I guess notably nuclear power and also fossil fuels. Um, and then you can, I guess you can kind of retro predict technological trends and you can get a, at least a picture of how, how feasible it is to um, forecast these trends. And my question is, what did you find? How, how accurate can we kind of be as we look forward? Well, the, the accuracy varies on the, depending on the technology. Some technologies like transistors come down at a remarkably smooth exponential rate. Um, so you get a pretty darn accurate forecast. Um, uh, and by the way, let me just to tell you an anecdote about that. I remember being in a meeting where we were talking about technology and there was somebody there who was a chip designer. Mm -hmm. And his story right, and at the meeting was, you know, Everybody thinks Moore's Law, just, it's just guaranteed that uh, integrated circuits are just going to get cheaper and faster all the time. But I can tell you, we repeatedly just felt like we were up against the wall. We couldn't see how to make it happen. And then somebody would have an idea and there would eventually be a breakthrough. But for us, Moore's Law was like people began to just expect we were going to pull the rabbit out of the hat again and again and again, which they did. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but... So it's. I guess it's, by definition, you can't anticipate the thing that gets you gets you out of yeah, the, the hole. Yeah, and when you go through and you look at the technological breakthroughs, the specific innovations were not anticipated ahead of time, mm -hmm. but remarkably, the level of performance that they would give was anticipated, mm -hmm. and um, and you know it's this it's this trend of technological improvement that's driving uh, the whole increase in. Complexity in civilization, as our technologies have gotten more and more sophisticated as measured by fairly concrete performance metrics. Um, but, but back to your question, uh, so forecasts are, you know, it depends. The forecast for solar energy is not as accurate as the forecast for transistors because it follows a wigglier path as it goes along. Uh, you know, there's a period in um, the 2000 to 2010, where there were uh, shortages of materials and where the price kind of plateaued for quite a while. And then in 2010, the Chinese got involved and prices plummeted down. But if you, so we can't predict any of that, yeah. but long range, you know, you draw a line through 40 or 50 yeah. years of data, it's pretty steady. And in fact, in 2010, by doing that, I made a forecast that was published in Nature that um, solar energy was going to be cheaper than coal-fired electricity by 2020. And, you know, magazines like The Economist said that was crazy. And we were right. Uh, so so it's been, it has been shown to be useful in making predictions. They're not perfectly accurate. And in fact, I think our biggest contribution has been showing how to forecast how accurate the predictions will be. Because a prediction's not very useful unless you know how accurate it is. If you make a prediction, but you know it's wildly inaccurate, then you probably shouldn't pay much attention yeah, to it. Yeah. But, but we, can, we can quantify a priori 
how accurate the predictions from this method are, from Wright's law or Moore's law are, and then use that to make probabilistic predictions and, um, uh, and therefore we know how accurate the predictions are. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something we've tested on 50 technologies making you know, 6,000 predictions, pretending we were in the past and uh, forecasting the future. There's some lesson here, just briefly, and then maybe this won't make sense, but there's some kind of U-curve with how accurate you can be with forecasts, where, like the weather, you know, I can easily predict the price of semiconductors tomorrow because I know it'll be similar. In the short-ish term, on the order of, you know, couples of years, well, I just can't anticipate the supply chain shortage or whatever, so it's, it's close to noise. But then again, in the long term, let's say something like five or ten years, then you can begin making the kind of predictions that you did about solar PV because you can look at these kind of long lines which roughly hold when you zoom out far enough um, and you can just kind of go forwards again. And of course the very long term then things get fuzzy again but there's some kind of there's some kind of valley where both sides you can make roughly roughly confident predictions. Well there's um it, it depends on what you're trying to predict. Like maybe just to take the weather example, I can't predict whether or not it will rain uh, you know on this sure. date a year from now. But one can predict, uh, in, in climate models, one can predict if the CO2 level goes up, that the world will warm. And it's because you're making a different kind of prediction. You're making a statistical prediction. You're not predicting what's gonna happen on a specific day. You're predicting that, on average, winters are gonna be warmer than they were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you always have to, some kinds of predictions are possible and others aren't. It's, it's just like us saying that we can predict this technology is likely to get better in terms of its performance or this lineage of technologies because a technology is never the same. That's how you improve them. You keep changing the technology, mm -hmm. but there are lineages and you can predict this lineage is very likely to lead to improvements and this other lineage is not. There is like kind of a tension or something I see here with this like, oh, sorry, on the topic of kind of climate change and solar power versus like other energy sources, which is that um, there's like this worry I have that, you know, Wright's law is this like, um, you know, really like awesome kind of predictive thing, kind of like backwards looking. But as we've seen with Moore's law as well, like we can kind of hit barriers and this thing can kind of slow down. And there's this question of, you know, as a world, should we be taking this like one really big bet on solar power and all the like kind of complementary technologies um, you know, that kind of come with it as batteries and other things um, because they've worked so well in the past? Or is there like a risk here, maybe even a systemic risk um, that like a lot of the world becomes dependent on what are also just a few kind of like rare supply chains uh, and like rare minerals and, and the like. And I'm curious, yeah, when you're thinking about, I guess, the policy implication of this, how much of this is like a solar power kind of forward question versus we need a like broader portfolio of technologies? Yeah, yeah, so it's a good question. Um, so we've written some papers about this. Uh, we, we actually, it's a, the paper is called Wright meets Markowitz. So Wright is Wright's law and Markowitz is Harry Markowitz, mm -hmm. who, who uh, you know, is the inventor of portfolio theory. And, and in Markowitz style portfolio theory, you choose assets that you're gonna invest in, but you assume that your investments don't affect what those assets are gonna do. And you also assume that you know the risk and the return on the assets and their correlation to each other with perfect precision. And if you do that, you can make a, that's the right way to invest. But there's two big differences investing in technologies. 
One is that you don't know the outcome. There's a lot of uncertainty. And the second is, I mean, we can make forecast, we can forecast progress, but there's uncertainty in those forecasts. Uh, but the other is that your investments affect the outcome. And that's a big difference because if you want to get a technology to go down its learning curve, you've got to invest in it. So if the world consisted of a thousand technologies, all of which were all the same, what should you do? Mm. And Markowitz would, would suggest, Harry Markowitz wouldn't, he's, he's a very smart guy, but the theory it naively used would suggest you should just invest in all thousand technologies. Mm. But because you have to invest, investment is required to make progress, you actually, that would be the wrong thing to do. What you should do is pick some of them, not one, because there's uncertainty about their characteristics, but pick a few of them and invest in those. And how many you should pick depends on the nature of the uncertainty. Mm. So you, should, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. Neither should you put one egg in every basket. You should put a few eggs in the right baskets. Mm. And, you know, because it, it takes a long time to bring a technology to fruition, to, to commercial use in a practical way. I mean, it takes typically 50 years or more. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, at this stage, when we think about a problem like climate change, we know a lot about the track record of the technologies. So we have a lot of information that we can use in making these investments. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't just make a bet on one thing. That's, we don't know enough to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, in addition to solar, we're betting on wind. We should keep doing um, research on other technologies. You know, fusion may eventually pay off someday. Yeah. And uh, it actually has a pretty good performance record. Mm. So, though it's starting from a long distance yeah. away, but it may eventually turn out to be a good thing. So we should keep doing some more research on that, keeping some options open, but we do need to make some bets and put our money down on the table and yeah. just go for it in enough technologies to really make it happen. And there's definitely like an overarching kind of story here of when we're talking about bets. It's not necessarily a, a you know, like zero sum game amongst just these technologies. If you look at R&D spending on just like clean energy as a whole, it's like pretty, pretty small compared to like yeah. lots of other things. Yeah. But, you know, we do have some bets that I could definitely say are bad bets. Yeah. We shouldn't be betting on fossil fuels anymore. Yeah. No research should go into fossil fuels any longer. No research should go into nuclear power, fission nuclear power anymore. Why? It's just not going to, I mean, it has a very bad track record. Uh -huh. You know, if I pick trajectories of 50 technologies, you show nuclear like sticks out as, yeah, yeah, yeah. as the worst performing technology. So why make a bet on that one when we've got a lot of good ones to bet on? Right, fascinating. I mean, I think that that leaves loads of things for, for listeners to like contemplate and uh, yeah, maybe be provocative there too. So I should flag that we've done uh, an entire episode. I was just looking at it just now, basically exactly a year ago uh, with, with Matt Ives kind of exploring some of the implications this has for like climate change policy specifically. So I'll just refer listeners to, to listen to that if they're interested in uh, some of the like questions here around like costs and fast transition, slow transition and the like. And I'm uh, curious to maybe explore some of the other kind of like implications here. Um, 
So one of these is um, I'm just kind of curious for your take on the like general kind of um, our ideas getting harder to to find uh, paper. I don't know if you've kind of explored this uh, or have any thoughts, there, but it's broadly um, this discussion that you know Moore's law holds, but you know it's becoming increasingly more expensive to do in the sense that it requires a lot more scientists or a lot more inputs just to be able to like extract um, you know the the same amount of kind of like progress, and that this might be um, you know kind of pointing towards this kind of like broader uh, stagnation or technological stagnation that we're kind of like risking here. Um, yeah, I'm curious if you've got any like thoughts on either that paper specifically or on this kind of like broader argument that I think um, it often kind of feeds into. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting idea. I, I'm not completely convinced. I certainly think that there's truth that uh, there's, there's a, 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 a tension between two factors. One is that as we make technological progress, we get ever better tools. Ever better tools allows us to make ever better technological progress. So the computer is a great example. Mm. You know, the, com, up until 19, well, computers basically weren't used in science until 1950, or roughly. And since then, as they've been deployed, they're now used everywhere, and they're an incredibly powerful tool for allowing us to do science better. Mm because uh, we can simulate just about anything now. And we can gather data that we could never have gathered before as a result of computers. So our tools are getting better. On the other hand, as we solve more and more problems, the problems that remain to be solved get more and more complex because the low-hanging fruit has been picked. Yeah. And, um, you know, fossil fuel extraction is a good example. Fossil fuel extraction is vastly more technologically sophisticated than it was a century ago. But in parallel, the extraction problem has gotten harder because the easily accessible oil fields have been uh, mined, uh, have been extracted. And uh, so we have to go deeper and deeper and the oil becomes harder and harder to find. There's still tons of oil down in the earth. So we're not going to run out of it, but we have to get keep getting better to keep extracting it. And that's an example where remarkably everything has just held almost exactly even mm. over a century and a half. Quick kind of um, follow-up question on that. What do you make of the shale gas revolution and kind of advances in, in drilling there? Well, I mean, it's it, th there are swings in the price of fossil fuels. There, there'll be an advance like the shale gas revolution, which makes oil accessible that wasn't accessible before. Um, you know, it's still more expensive to extract than like Saudi oil, uh, quite a lot more expensive to extract. And, um, and you know, once again, th there have been other revolutions with drilling methods and, and uh, other technological innovations through time. Uh, and there's been kind of an arms race against the oil getting harder to find. Uh, I think we'll end up leaving almost all the oil in the ground mm. because other technologies are becoming cheaper. So you have this general story where as you innovate, two things happen. One is you get better at um, solving problems. And the other thing is that problems get harder. Yeah, so I, there's definitely an arms race there. Right Now, how that's gonna play out, does that mean we're gonna have a slowdown where we just get worse at doing this? I'm skeptical about that part. Okay. So the, the really key question seems to be, do we get better at solving problems faster than the problems get hard? In other words, yeah. do we hold the microphone close enough to the speaker yeah. that you get yeah. the speakers blow out? Or is it just far away enough that you get a kind of 
fading. And it seems like a sensitive, potentially kind of chaotic feedback style mechanism. Unless you have general reflections, I, I was curious to ask a question about um, whether we can say anything about these kind of long run forecasts about or economic forecasts when we're talking about stagnation by looking at production networks. Well, uh, written a paper about that and uh, uh, with James McNerney as the lead author. Uh, so in that paper, we, we took a kind of, we actually started out by thinking about, trying to think about production networks in ecological terms. Mm -hmm. And uh, because there's something like, you know, in, in an ecosystem, uh, there are what are called trophic levels, food, food webs. Mm -hmm. So in a food web, you assign grass, say, uh, a trophic level of one, because it, you know, it, it sits at the bottom. Uh, zebras, if zebras eat grass, then, and, and only grass, and then they would have a trophic level of two. And if lions eat zebras and only zebras, they have a trophic level of three. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's a very useful way to think about uh, ecosystems because one of the things you realize is, is if you want to regulate, if you want to think about grass, you need to think about lions because lions control what's eating the grass. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, if, you know, uh, if, all the zebras get eaten up, the grass will become very plentiful and vice versa. Um, so the lion population determines a lot about grass. Well, in production networks, it plays out a little bit differently. Um, you know, if you have a company that gets all its parts from another company that gets all its parts from another company, you have a different kind of trophic level. Mm -hmm. and uh, And so you can have a roughly the same idea. Um, it turns out in, in both in food webs, food webs are never so simple as having trophic levels one, two, three, because uh, zebras eat other things than grass, lions eat other things than zebras. There can be feedback loops because a bacteria will eat decaying lions mm -hmm. and, and, and worms will eat decaying lions and those may be in the soil and so feedback loops can be more complicated. But, but you can calculate, still calculate trophic levels for uh, organisms in an ecology by looking at the dietary fractions. If you can measure what fraction of a lion's diet is a zebra, mm -hmm. and you do that for all the things the lion eats and all the things all the other animal eats, then you can calculate the, the levels in a consistent way that is actually very useful for managing ecosystems. And you can do the same thing in economy, except it's looking at, to, in a given industry, to make a given product, uh, what fraction of their inputs come from the other industries. Mm -hmm. You use exactly the same set of equations to calculate that. Mm -hmm. And now the remarkable thing that, that uh, we discovered is that it's not that this is useful in, for thinking about production networks because in, innovation is proceeding in the same way. Mm -hmm. If the maker of the chips for your laptop makes an innovation, that'll cause the price of the chips to come down uh, for a given performance level, which will make your laptop for a given performance cheaper. Mm -hmm. and uh, Or similarly, for the same price, you'll get a better laptop. So one of those two things will happen. And so 
the prediction we made is that industries with deep um, supply chains will improve more quickly than industries with shallow supply chains. And that prediction held out remarkably well in data. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of harks back to Adam Smith's idea, except we're not just sharing, you know, specializing to make production efficient, we're specializing to innovate better. Mm. And I, I guess there's kind of like a like a sectoral story here as well, which I'm keen to maybe maybe get to as well, which is that as economies move maybe from agricultural to manufacturing, these kind of supply chains become a lot longer and hence innovation kind of accumulates quicker and we see quicker growth. But then interestingly as well, as economies maybe move from manufacturing to more service sectored uh, industries, these supply chains get shorter again as well. And I'm curious if you can maybe speak a bit more about what this kind of means, maybe for the like secular stagnation, uh, like hypothesis. Yeah, as a it whole. May, this may be part a partial explanation of secular stagnation, uh, because economies tend to go through cycles. The you um, you know you start out with a primitive economy where there's just agriculture, mm -hmm. and then you acquire you know metalworking and and uh, more sophisticated technologies and uh, and then eventually you have a transition after the industrial revolution where you get uh, powerful manufacturing capability there's a lot of specialization and the trophic level of the economy increases mm -hmm. which according to our theory means the rate of innovation should increase too and then, through time, if manufacturing is outsourced to other places, then uh, the, it becomes more of a service economy and the innovation rate slows down. Mm -hmm. And we, roughly speaking, saw this to be true in the data. Um, but it's not, not, not fully tested because it's, it's hard to actually measure the, these trophic levels very far back, very accurately. I was going to ask that, so how, how do you go about um, coming up with some measure of, you know, the trophic level of the world economy? Well, in this case, we took advantage of something called the World Input-Output Database that's been, uh, that allows us to go back uh, about 14 years initially. It's now longer than that, but the first data set, we only could go back 14 years. But we could see these trends quite clearly over the 14-year span because they had the inputs and outputs for each country and each industry for, you know, 35 in industries and 43 countries over 14 year span of time. And, um, but yeah, data is hard to come by. I was curious to kind of pick up on a question Finn asked earlier about this kind of like, almost like arms race, right? Between ideas getting harder to find and us getting more tools. Do you have a sense or like any like, or even just like aspects you think are like really important to consider when, when thinking about this question as to like which side might win out. Um, either, you know, this being a drastically different world where we kind of like stagnate and plateau versus a world where, you know, we really um, kind of see exponential growth or um, what have you, uh, kind of like very weird futures. I don't, I don't feel like I can hang up yeah. on firm ground, <laughs> but if I can just speculate, yeah. um, you know, there's a there's a sort of a dichotomy. At one poll, you've got Ray Kurzweil, who says, you know, we're we're, we're becoming m more and more, our technology is becoming more and more sophisticated, and we'll start to see feedback where we're effectively designing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think he's right that that will happen. 
So at one end, you've got Ray Kurzweil, and at the other end, you've got Robert Borden, who says that technology, the golden days of technology were 1880, the days of Edison, when we created all the modern comforts of society, refrigerators and uh, light bulbs and you know, recording equipment and movies and all these things that make our life pleasant. Mm -hmm. And so Ray Kurzweil has a science fiction view that we're gonna evolve beyond something that you would call human. Mm -hmm. And Gordon imagines we're just gonna stay human forever and all we really needed were refrigerators and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, light bulbs. Mm -hmm. And um, And I think to be honest, I think Kurzweil's closer to being right, mm. though Kurzweil had completely unrealistic timescales over which evolution was going to happen, and I think uh, at times a completely unrealistic uh, idea about what that will really mean. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on artificial intelligence and timelines there? Yes, I think you know we're already seeing substantial improvements in artificial intelligence mm. that went beyond what was anticipated 20 years ago by quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although that's oscillated through time. You know, there was a period in, a, in the 50s and 60s where people were saying, we're going to solve all these problems really fast. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they thought they were going to make uh, artificial computers that could think like people in a matter of a decade or something. Yeah. And that just didn't turn out to be true. They thought that Problems like face recognition or, or you know, voice recognition were going to be easy. They turned out to be hard. And so when I, when I was a, a graduate student or a young postdoc, those it's, people had suddenly dawned on them, these are hard problems. Mm -hmm. And then we've seen them get solved. Yeah. And so, though they're not perfect, they're pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've seen... Um, you know, game after game, chess, then go. Machines now play them better than people. Mm -hmm. There's still some things machines can't do. Yeah. And a, current machine learning methods like deep learning neural nets still cannot really form a sophisticated model of the world. You know, they don't form a model that they can explain to you the way a, ch a child does. Yeah. Children are doing something that we still don't understand. And the, develop, the, the developmental process of a, a human being from age one to five mm -hmm. does something that's still magic from the yeah. point of view of AI. But I think we'll eventually figure out what's yeah. going on there. And so I don't see any impenetrable barriers to AI uh, doing everything that we imagine it can do. But I also don't see the kind of um, doomsday scenario that people like Nick Bostrom throw out. I think that's just kind of silly. Mm -hmm. And because I think we see the way AI and human beings exist symbiotically now. Mm -hmm. AI is really, really smart. It's just smart in a very different way than the way we're smart. It needs us to make it. And we like having it to make our lives better. And we live in a very nice symbiosis. Yeah. And I don't see that breaking down for a long time. Uh, and, and I see there being a kind of merger where the boundary between the two starts to get fuzzy. And I think that's the way the future will play out. 
Yeah, I think this AI express question is definitely like something to push back on, but also just a huge can of worms that I don't think we'd be able to do justice to in the kind of like 10 minutes we have left. So I think it's best to just move on to like closing questions. Like Finn, do you want to do you want to lead with that? Yeah, sure. Are there specific research questions and you can be as as granular as you want, um, which someone listening to this might actually be interested in just taking up if they have some kind of econ background? Well, there's so many problems to be solved. Uh, you know, we're still very far from understanding technological change. What are the drivers that make it come about? We need to gather much better data to understand that. So it's an example, you know, it's low hanging fruit at this point. Uh, but, you know, I've tried many times to get funded to do it, never managed to convince a funder. So it, it sits between all of the inter- all of the disciplinary boundaries. Uh, uh, What's it's in this case? Well, on one hand, it sounds like economics, but it involves gathering data and thinking about technology, which then sounds like engineering. But probably the right way to think about it is to think about uh, innovation as it's done in, in evolution. So now that looks a lot like biology. So it's sitting at the intersection of those fields, yeah. not to mention uh, informatics and computer science and um time series analysis and all the other things that need to be done. And ultimately, gathering and curating a data set, which is like library science. Have you heard of progress studies? No. Oh, it's right up that field. Yeah, so it's a kind of, I guess, nascent field of, it's kind of has one foot in academia, where it's really, it is trying to answer these questions about technological change, and in particular interventions to, you know, speed up various kinds of, of progress. And it's kind of, yeah, I don't know how exactly to, to summarize it, but it's about, let's say, two or three years old. So, yeah, Doin Farmer, thank you so much. Great. All right. Thank you, guys. That was Doin Farmer on complexity and predicting technological progress. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash farmer. That's F-A-R-M-E-R. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout the interview, plus a whole lot more. And if you know of any other cool resources on these topics that you think others might find useful, then please send them to us at feedback at hearthisidea.com. Likewise, if you have any constructive feedback, email us or click on the website, where we have a link to an anonymous form under each episode, as well as the listener survey that I plugged at the very start. And lastly, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and to Claudia Morehouse for writing the transcript. And thanks very much to you for listening.